Welcome back to the In-Laws Podcast. I'm Brianne. And I'm Sophia. We're two law students who created this podcast to talk about law school, law talk, and everything in between. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the In-Laws Pod and in our personal capacities at Sophinlaw and at Brianne-in-Law. We both post on our stories very frequently. We have a guest today, Sabrina, who is a 2L at UVA and also known as at Chilling Adventures of Sab on TikTok. We invited Sabrina on the pod to talk about the intersection of law school and disability. Sabrina, do you have anything you want to add to that? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited. Um, This is my first time being on a podcast, so thank you. And I've really enjoyed yours. Um, And I'm just really grateful to talk about disability and the law and law school. I, you know, as a disabled law student, things are rough sometimes. And I think the legal field is incredibly inaccessible. There's a lot of room for improvement. And I feel very passionately about pushing for equal access to law, like the hashtag nothing about us without us, you know, Um, you know, it's important we're here. So amazing. We wanted this episode to be more so led by you because we feel like this is kind of your arena. And we, you know, we have our own personal experiences with our own stuff. But I feel like you, you've built your platform definitely on this and you're super engaged in the community and with activism within the disability realm. Yeah. Um, Well, let me know if there's anything you want me to elaborate on or anything specifically to talk about, um, because I feel like there's a lot to say. And I think a huge part of this that can be so difficult is that access to the legal field and access to accommodations varies so much by school and varies so much by someone's individual experience, varies by the state you take the bar in. And I I think that can be one of the most tricky things when talking about disability in law school and law. And so I want to plug like really quickly and right away, the National Disabled Law Students Association, which I am, I do social media for. Um, They have worked really hard to, um, over the past few years, to create a space for solidarity for disabled law students amongst different law schools across the country and I think maybe internationally a bit too but at least like mostly like in the U.S. maybe some Canada Um, and (laughs) I think the more we talk about this stuff and the more spaces we create where we're talking between schools I think that is one of the most important things we can do because sometimes I've heard of schools um, especially through Endulsa short for the National Disabled Law Students Association, where someone will say, oh, my school says we can't do this. And then five other people will chime in and be like, no, we can do this at my school. And I think mm-hmm. when you find out other people's experiences or like what accommodations are given at one school, you can kind of pressure your school into being more accessible when they hear about what other schools are doing. I think it's so interesting that common theme of there's no communication between law schools. And I think that has to deal with how competitive the legal field is, we're just taught, like, really focus on yourself. If anyone, you're rooting for, like, the people at your school against other schools. So I think that really discourages, like, unity. Oh, my God. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. I was like, why don't we have solidarity? And that makes so much sense. Like, especially with how, like, 
sick the legal field is with elitism like how entrenched it is maybe sick isn't the right word and when he's like talking about disability uh, but like how um entrenched elitism is in the law in the legal field and i think like ultimately like that harms all of us but especially harms disabled students and you know really discourages this us helping each other out even within our own law schools like you said yeah it's one of my main beefs with law school is even the people who have graduated and the attorneys we meet and stuff it's almost like the people who have gone before want everybody to go through what they went through which has never made sense to me because why do you want the new people to feel as bad as you potentially did or like have to go through the you know the obstacles and stuff that you had to deal with that's never made sense to me. And then kind of back to how you were talking about the schools talking back and forth. Like somebody asked me today, actually, like how my school deals with accommodations, if people get them, if they talk about them and stuff. And quite a few of my friends do and are extremely open about it. Like nobody at my school is like, oh my God, you get time and a half. Like that's so crazy. Nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody cares. What's interesting is, so I get that I have accommodations in my law school. I have time and a half on exams. I have like an accommodation for a quiet space. So like, usually it's like me and like one other person in a room during exams. Though after 1L, we do flex exams. And also I'm taking mostly paper classes. So it's less of an issue. The flex exams, we can just choose whenever and do it on our own. Um, And then I have an accommodation for a note taker. So like someone will take notes like take notes in all my classes that I select that for and they'll upload them to a database and anyone who has that accommodation can get the notes and I'm pretty I'm like really open about it and I'm the president of advocates for disability rights which is like at UVA like our our individual org for um disabled students but not just disabled students talk about disability justice in general so people talk about it, but then like almost behind people's back, like there's like stigma. So mm-hmm. there's like a UVA law Reddit, like just for UVA law. I don't know if you have that for your schools too, but it's like, it's a scary space. Um, It's a hellscape. And on Reddit, like routinely over the years, like just like last year, probably this year it'll happen. Like people post about like how they feel like students with accommodations are gaming the system by getting more time on exams when COVID was really bad, students would post like basically throwing immunocompromised and chronically ill students under the bus, like being like, we don't need masks. And some people would say like horrible things, like they don't care if immunocompromised students get sick. Like it it, it was really, it's a, it's a bad space. Um, so it's like almost, I, I don't know, most of the people I talk with are like super nice. A lot of people, I know a lot of people who have accommodations, but I think the stigma is almost there, like in this anonymous space and like that they think we're gaming the system and it's just like no it's not even in level playing it's an attempt at it but right i i avoid reddit at all costs so i honestly haven't looked into it if my school does i wouldn't be surprised though because i don't know schools just they get petty they get clicky they you know they do the things I know UNC definitely doesn't have its own Reddit page, but we're also a tiny school. So it's just like everything happens in a group chat out in the open. Yeah. How big are your classes? Like, or like your class, like your graduating class, I guess. My graduating class is 180 students. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, We started at 205, but I think we're down to like 190 now. 
we're like 300 or like a little under 300 maybe 290 something <laughs> yeah Fuck. yeah so it's it's definitely maybe that i think that probably creates a space for a lot of stuff like this from what i can tell at my school it seems to be pretty supportive i don't think i haven't heard of anything like that happening um but something that's always really interested me because we have such small classes is everyone knows who has accommodations regardless of you know whether the people are open about it or not because you're sitting in a room taking your final exam with 16 people and two of them aren't there it just becomes very obvious and i really hate that yeah that's so interesting to me um the way we do exams is just diff or did is different where it's like you can kind of move around like you don't have to stay in your one room to take them like most people end up doing that but a lot of people move to like the second floor like our law school is just in one building um so some people go to rooms elsewhere so it's not obvious there however there's a big thing that i'm trying to push by i'll be working probably doing a directed study with a professor um a disabled professor at my law school um next semester where we're gonna work hopefully on a guide for faculty and students on disability inclusivity and just like best practices. Um, one being that like a lot of professors have no laptop policies. And I think that is like a huge accessibility issue because one, I my torts class last, last, um, last year and one L, I have an accommodation for laptop. I forgot to mention that. That's also one I have. And I was one of two people in a 70 person class with a laptop out and because you know, he didn't allow laptops. Um, and it's just kind of very uncomfortable to be a fresh baby 1L and have that like flag almost of like, oh, I have an accommodation. Oh, I have a disability. And I'm open about it. But maybe there are people that I wouldn't have wanted to know that or think. And I can definitely see a difference in the way people treat me sometimes when that is like, I want I want to have the autonomy to tell people if I'm disabled or not. I don't want it to be a like yeah. flag because of a professor's policies. And then on the other hand, it's like it, getting an, um, a diagnosis for certain things like ADHD or a learning disorder where you might need a laptop accommodation is super inaccessible for low income students, for students of color, um, for students who have certain like backgrounds where it just might not have been as easy or like accessible to get a diagnosis and so having these policies it just hurts it hurts everyone i i went off on a rant but it, it just frustrates me <laughs> no i get that we have a really big issue with the laptop thing at my school too shout out oj salinas who is a professor at my school who is pushing for all of the professors to ban their laptop bans. He's got a really great thing on Twitter about it. He is fantastic. And um him and a student have really been pushing for it. And that was a that was a big discussion around it. It was like you're just outing the people who have disabilities. And while I had never noticed, I had never seen anyone getting upset at students receiving accommodations for exams people were really peeved that they couldn't have a laptop in class and other people could. Yeah, I'm sure that happened. Um, and that does happen. I'm lucky I only had one professor with that policy, but it's still, you know, it's, it's discouraging me from taking certain classes that I would maybe want to take. Um, but I just like, don't want to deal with that. Even but, though I call my laptop, it's just another, you know, also I feel like we're adults, like we're all adults. We can make our decision 
whether we want to use a laptop or not. It's just feels a little like paternalistic. There's one professor at my school who he will allow like iPads or things that can be flat tablets to write on, but no laptops. Like nothing can like go up to like cover you. But then there's another professor who I have this semester who is no electronics unless you have an accommodation and nobody in my class has taken it. So nobody has a laptop, Um, but he does do a reporter. So there's one person every single class period who is only in charge of taking notes. So we have like our team's page that has all of the notes from the classes. So that's nice because then it's, if you're somebody who can't write fast enough, then those are there for you, but it's still, eh. Yeah, Uh, that's so interesting. I've never had a class where a professor did anything like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, what you said about all of us, like between the schools, the talking between the schools, it reminds me of the podcast that I started listening to called Normal Gossip. And the first question they ask all of their guests is like, what is your relationship to gossip? And I think it's so interesting because gossip has a bad reputation, right? But in spaces, in communities, it's actually one of the most powerful things. And because it's exchanging so much information because gossip is not inherently bad. And so it's exchanging all this information that normally is not exchanged because you're taught not to talk about it. Or there are certain things that you're not supposed to share because people above you or whatever, like they're the only people who can share that information or talk about those things. But when you're talking about these things in secret, then it lets everybody know and people can actually do something about it because they actually know. That is so interesting because it makes me think about this thing we're working on. Um, Well, basically, I feel like a lot of the issues at my school is that access on like how to apply for accommodations and like which professors are more accommodating, which professors are more accessible, like which things and which administrators are easier to go to if you're having difficulties. It's all like through gossip. Like it's all through these chains because people, I mean, some things people are louder about than others, like you feel more comfortable doing so. But for the most part, it's like just word of mouth. It's nothing is written down. And what we want to do is build institutional memory um, about these issues. And we actually found a resource guide from UNC law um, about like disability accommodations. I don't know if you've seen it. I can send it to you. It was made by my friend, Sarah. Oh my gosh. Well, someone sent it to me over the summer and was like, hey, can we make something like this at UVA? And I was like, yeah, we definitely should make something like this at UVA. Um, because, And it's something other marginalized groups and other affinity groups at the school are thinking of doing as well. And we might all, you know, collab on something, hopefully, um, just because I think a lot of orgs, different orgs, have been pushing the administration for things like, for example, we just got gender neutral bathroom. Like we just got a good gender neutral bathroom. So it used to be one on the third floor of our law school, like super distant, like no one could reach it. And now they're like in a really prime location. But that was because of years of like advocacy by the um, by Lambda, our um, LGBTQ student org. And so that's just one example of like we want to create institutional memory on the things that people have pushed for within the school for change. So yeah, well, your friend's guide is great. And yeah, she's, she is yeah. amazing. She started um, a student organization at my school for neurodivergent students, which didn't exist, I think before this year. Um, and she's been working on like creating this 
like you said, this institutional knowledge um, and like really putting it down on paper and making sure it gets passed along. And she's been really, really, I mean, so far successful at it. Um, And I think no matter what organization you're involved in, institutional knowledge in law school is so difficult because you're only there for three years. And most people aren't even involved in student organizations their first year. So for example, like the class that was above me, so the class that graduated back in May, they got sent remote during like spring break of their 1L year and then spent their entire 2L year remote. So they, they were handing over student organizations to my class with like no memos, no information about how to run it. Like we were completely taking over from nothing. Yeah. Um, and it's been really difficult. We've, I mean, we're also fighting that gender neutral bathroom thing in my school because we have some, but they're like in the faculty office area or like in the Dean suite. And it's like, what the fuck? Like give us a good one. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It took forever to get this. It also was a huge issue trying to get tampons in bathrooms for some reason. (laughs) But something that I want to talk about at least, or see what your thoughts are, if that's okay with you, like this is your podcast, (laughs) uh, (laughs) is career stuff and disability, because I feel like that's also a really interesting topic and like being disabled and applying for jobs and like various types of law Mm -hmm. um, can be really difficult and slash very different depending on what you're looking to get into so if that's something you'd also want to talk about today (laughs) yeah I think we should because I kind of ran into this actually this week when I was applying to something because they have the disclosures so you can put whether you're disabled or not and how like you can select the specific item and I was like I've never seen that like specific like I've just seen like Mm -hmm. disclose or choose not to say no they they had it twice in the application two separate times um and it was it wasn't required at a time you could opt out of answering but the second one was like very detailed like they had specific physical conditions specific psychological conditions like they had it listed out and I was like, okay. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. I just put, I don't want to answer. <laughs> yeah, I probably would have said the same thing. That's so uncomfortable. No, I'm glad you brought this up because it's something I was thinking about specifically. I was looking at statistics before we got on. And when you look at statistics of like, law students who self-report disability, law students who seek accommodations in school, bar applicants who seek accommodations on the bar exam, the number hovers around 3%. And then in 2020, there was a national survey of attorneys and the number was 1%. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And I think maybe that says a lot about our profession not really um, treating disabled attorneys well. Yeah, 
I, I think that says a lot. I think also because it feels like our pr- profession doesn't treat people well in general. We have incredible high rates of substance abuse. A lot of people leave the field, high suicide rates, depression, anxiety. Like if no one's being treated well, especially marginalized groups aren't being treated well. And then especially disabled people aren't being treated well. Like it's, <laughs> it's just so bad sometimes. Yeah. Mm. It's literally dominoes. Like a dominoes going in a circle, like one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's so bad. I, um, this makes me think a lot of, I, I have a, a friend or a colleague from the National Disabled Law Students Association, Lucy Treishman, who just graduated from NYU. She's like really, her Instagram is disabled injustice. Um, and she's written a lot about, um, this and like how there are so few attorneys in who are disabled and publicly identify as disabled or like proudly and out because I think there are probably more but I think there's just still like such huge stigma and people are scared to you know self-identify or might push themselves past what is safe for them personally because of the prestige or elitism in the field I don't know variety of reasons but she she writes a lot about this and uh, really kind of like you know, making space for yourself as a disabled person and setting boundaries. And it's, it's hard. It's hard sometimes. And I think also like, I don't know if um, you've heard about thing. I don't know, like how your career offices and stuff handle it. Like something we want to do is host an event with the different career offices. At some point we have like the office of private practice and then like public service center and then the office for clerkships, um, like host one with all three of them where they talk about like applying for jobs. Like if you're applying for a clerkship or applying for a firm job or public different public service stuff like how would you disclose your disability and like how would you disclose because I've heard a variety of different things from different career counselors like I've heard some who say do not disclose ever and I'm like oh but that's because like you might be discriminated against in the process you know that's not legal but or some who are like yeah you could disclose because it could help you like um yeah, it could especially I, I think I've been encouraged to in public service to an extent. Um, but it also just depends on like the type of public service. It's so hard, it's so tricky. But yeah. Um God. So I have always like not really known how to handle this situation because I will say I didn't even know that I qualified as having a disability until probably 10 months ago. Yeah. Um, because I have what I've always just described as like incredibly poor vision. Um, didn't realize that, that if it impacted your life in the way that impacts mine, like I'm not able to drive because of it, that it's considered a disability. Yeah. I was not bringing it up in interviews at all because it would like a lot of people would automatically ride me off and I didn't even think I had protections. So I also have gotten extremely like inconsistent advice about what to do. Um, Especially because a lot of jobs as attorneys, they want you to be able to drive. (laughs) And like, that's just been a whole mess on its own. And luckily everyone that I've worked for has been like, super fantastic about it. I haven't had any poor experiences, but I do think like, first of all, 
my career counselors never brought it up when I like mentioned it. Um, and anyone I did get advice from, it was always conflicting. Yeah. Well, um, the professor I mentioned who I'll be hopefully working on this resource guide with, um, he, he is legally blind and like talks a lot about his disability and dealing with that as a law professor and someone who also worked clerked and worked at a big law firm for a bit so if you ever want to be in touch with him I'd be happy to put you in touch with him because he's very sweet I love him so much like he's he's a great professor and like a really kind human and just would definitely you know talk about that because he can't drive also yeah I mean it's it's such an odd but I did like tangent when I was 11 they told me that by the time I was 25 I would be blind which is like, why did they tell that to a child? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and now I'm not blind. But um, yeah, my vision can't be corrected to 2040, which is what you legally need to be able to drive. So I'm out here in suburbia relying on the Chapel Hill transit buses. That is hard, I am sure. It's honestly... It's been better than I expected. Transit here is pretty okay. That's good. Public transportation. We need good public transportation everywhere. Basically, any student who is not a wealthy white dude whose dad is a lawyer has this extra burden of work of like trying to change the system, whether it is about disability and accommodations or whether it's the Lambda and outlaw trying to get gender neutral bathrooms or BOLSA. It's just like this extra work that you're taking on, on top of a schedule that is already insane. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, you know, some people are like, want to be activists and they want to be advocates, but sometimes I feel like some people like don't want to, and that's okay, but they're forced to just mm-hmm. because of like active discrimination or harm they're facing from their school or their people around them. When you are in this space that wasn't built for you basically. And, and it's, and it's really hard. Um, like, and it can be really hard and, I don't know. That's why I think the solidarity and building this culture of like support within our own law schools, but also between law schools is so important to like fight against that and create spaces where people just feel okay being themselves and like not having to fight so hard all the time. Right. I agree. I also think that, I mean, most schools have a habit of doing this, but I think it's particularly malicious when it comes to higher ed, but it's always, there's always like one or two students that are chosen as like the token perfect people that like represent the school you know and one of my mentors was that person last year anytime there was an empty seat at some type of event where people from my school got invited to they were putting her in that chair anytime there was a student panel where they needed like a black woman on the panel they put her on the panel and this year it's one of my best friends and he is latino and they're literally making him do everything. And I mean, a lot of it he wants to, but I think a lot of it too is just like excessive. Like they have him like as a like a director of this one committee. And then like now he's on the panel to like do interviews and just like all this camp campus ambassador stuff. And it's like, yes, these people are doing great things at the school, but so are other people. So why are you putting it all on like this one person? And I feel like it 
it typically, those selections typically revolve around race. I think that's like the easiest Mm. thing for like admin to pick out. And it just, I don't know. It just makes me think they don't care about other types of diversity like ever. And that's so tokenizing too, to like the students who are in, put in that position. Yeah. That makes me think like, do you, do you have like, um, like your school social media, like the way and like who they pick for pictures? It's always the same people. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to my friend about this tonight, who's mm-hmm. Korean. And she was talking about, she's like, yeah, I feel like I'm always in these pictures, like for the diversity points. And mm-hmm. also it's funny during the student activities fair, when they showed, like they came to my, like advocates for disability rights table to take a picture for us, have never talked to us or like, you know shown support for the organization but are like hey we're gonna put you on our instagram (laughs) yep (laughs) yep there's a something that became really annoying for me when i was a 2l doing board interviews for the student organizations i'm a part of trying to get new board members on Mm -hmm. is that every single student organization wants to have diversity on their board as they should like you should but when the law school itself is so not diverse you're just asking students of color to take on way more work than anyone else like you can't have this student be on six or seven different boards it's just not fair to them so I think and I encourage all the student organizations to like step back and analyze why you want this because is it just to look good yeah that why you care about it that's so important and definitely an issue here as well i'm sure it's an issue at every law school because every law school lacks any kind of significant fucking diversity yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because the legal field is just super elitist super gatekeeping and it's really hard to get here. It's really, it's, I, I'm in like my school's law and public service program is what it's called, which we had to apply to like our first year. And it's like catered to students who are planning on going directly in public service. People's plans change. So you're not like stuck on doing that. Like you can change your mind, but it's like, that's what it's supposed to be for to create that space. Um, and we were talking about like keeping people in public service um, or like keeping people committed. And I'm like, you need to give people resources and money. Like I, I, I am like one of like maybe like two or three first gen college graduates like in the org. And I mean, there aren't a lot of people who talk openly about being disabled in the org. Again, it's also a very white space because students of color and students who are like first gen students in general, and then like um, students from immigrant families and backgrounds like have different responsibilities and like gotta pay your loans and don't have a safety net. And so not as many of like, not as many of us not as many people in different these different groups end up in like public service spaces um and that's something like we've been having a lot of conversations about um and it's just you know it's hard I I don't even know where I like got started on this I'm sorry (laughs) um I just had a meeting about it today so it's like fresh on my mind but I I think it just says a lot about like who gets access to these spaces, who ha- who can be in these spaces, who can afford it. It's like gatekeeping all around. And So one thing that we haven't talked about yet, or I think we've touched on it briefly, but I want to talk about it in more depth, yeah. is 
the process of getting accommodations in law school and some of the difficulties that come with it. Um, you mentioned earlier, like it can be very different, different at different schools, the process to get accommodations and even like just how the school handles them, um, as well as I know it's very different state by state for taking the bar exam. Um, and I really appreciated my legal writing professor had us listen to a podcast about requesting accommodations in law school my 1L year. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Legal writing team at UNC is fantastic. They're the best people in the school. Oh. And something they talked about at this podcast that wasn't even something that ever crossed my mind before was that people who haven't had the class privilege to have these diagnoses for several years or deal with these things, they don't even know what accommodations to ask for. Yes. Um, so I feel like there's so much to say here. Well, first, that's like why we want to create a resource guide to right. kind of show like a variety of different accommodations you can ask, because that's a huge thing a lot of people don't know. Um, and I don't know how good schools are at working with people to figure out. Like mm -hmm. I've, I've heard from people, not necessarily in my school, um, but in general, that it's like you go in and they're like, what do you need? And it's like, how are you supposed to know? Yeah. Um, and, and it's so hard. Um, one resource just in general that I want to plug is askjan.org. It's like ask and then J-A-N. They just have a bunch of different accommodations listed that you could ask for in work or school for different disabilities. And it's a pretty intense, like it's a pretty, um, I think it's a pretty decent list. But law school's bizarre. And that doesn't mean like law schools are going to do that or like, but it, I mean, something to look at in general. Um I know in my school, the process is you have to, like, it's one system, like the Student Disability Access Council. It's SDAC is the acronym. I'm not sure what it stands for exactly. And I think they handle accommodations through the entire university. So not just the law school. Mm -hmm. And you go to them, you send them all your paperwork. So I did, did this summer before going into law school and you meet with them like virtually and they make recommendations. But a lot of it was like, I had, I'm lucky I had accommodations in college, at least for my last two years. So I, that was, a, it was a pretty easy task of applying, but I think like, if you come in, like you said, a diagnosis is inaccessible. Um, and you know, some people, a lot of people aren't getting diagnosed until later in life. And if you didn't have accommodations in college, how are you supposed to know? And I'm lucky I did. Um, but so they did that. And then the accommodations have to be officially approved by our head of student student affairs but usually it's just like she approves them and then that's instated i found the process of applying for accommodations in law school easier than applying in college like that it required a lot a lot less and was less time consuming um but it really does vary by school something i didn't something i'm scared about is applying for the mpre and bar accommodations mm -hmm. um and i was just talking with a friend about this he did not apply for accommodations from the mpre because he was like oh it's shorter like it's just multiple choice from my understanding and it, he didn't think he would need them but he definitely needs it for the bar however something he didn't know was if you don't get mpre accommodations that's held against you when applying for bar accommodations and the board denies people left and right, like for accommodations. Mm -hmm. um, like that is one of the biggest things we get at the national disabled law students association, people messaging us being denied their accommodations all the time, all the time. And it's just so frustrating. Um, 
because people don't know like if you I wouldn't have I mean I might have thought that but I wouldn't have known and it's it's just it's so it's inaccessible and then the information about it is inaccessible Mm -hmm. I yeah I think do we want to talk about the bar exam cheater yeah I think we have to yeah I think so so jump in if I'm missing any information, but essentially there was a post on Reddit where the poster is claiming to be someone who took the Illinois bar, is that correct? He said that they had accommodations and they were essentially misusing the accommodations to cheat on the exam. And we aren't quite sure if this is real, if it's based on anyone, in fact, if the person who posted it was actually the cheater, if they were trying to call out someone else, or there are just theories that this was a person who was pissed off at people who received accommodations and wanted to discredit accommodations. I don't know. What do you guys think about it? I would totally believe that last theory. Um, well, first and foremost, I. I think it is like super dangerous to post stuff like that, which is why I think that it is someone who like was maybe thinking that people are gaming the system because if you like really look at it, like people are not gaming the system. Like people who need accommodations are not being given them. And this is happening so frequently and, and sure, like maybe some people will get an accommodation that they don't really need like every once in a while, but I don't know. I'm of the philosophy that like, I don't care if, a few people gave the system if everybody who needs support gets it and I mean also first and foremost the bar exam should be abolished like that's still the baseline but yeah I think this is super <laughs> dangerous to post it's gonna the bar exam and different bar state bars are already like making it difficult for students especially students with ADHD applying for accommodations that's mm-hmm. a big thing a big thing with the LSAT too that if you like take stimulant medication like they will I know with LSAT I've seen people get denied for ADHD accommodations if they take stimulant meds and it's like doesn't make sense to me because under the ADA the Americans with Disabilities Act you're not supposed to take mitigating measures into account unless they're eyeglasses with when you have um like standard um low vision like different than what you've talked about Brienne um but yeah it just makes me mad (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I I definitely think it's plausible that it's someone who is just trying to discredit accommodations, whether that's attacking one specific person who received accommodations and they're theorizing that this person cheated, or, you know, just generally making shit up to stir the, spot, the pot. Um, and it's so upsetting because we all saw how quickly that went around and how much attention it got. And we all know that the only result from it is gonna be people with accommodations being treated worse, whether it's by their peers or faculty or their state bar. Literally. I I made a video about it. That was actually one of my like, more popular videos lately so I was like what the fuck of all the things TikTok chooses um but in the comments 
it became very evident that the way that the bar exam is proctored across states is not consistent because there were people saying, well, how would this person have access to their phone? And then there are other people saying like, they didn't check, like they didn't check you. You could have very easily had a phone Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. So it's like, there are holes to be poked in it, but at the same time, one, I don't really think somebody's stupid enough to expose themselves, but I do think that there is, I don't know, culture a movement I don't know something where people take something that has nothing to do with them and just like runs with it like I truly don't think the person who wrote that actually is the like the cheater like I I do think the theory that it's somebody else who is like waging this war against accommodations is the most likely option and they probably don't have a connection to it like I really feel like it's just one of those people that's like this is my fight that I decided to fight that has nothing to do with me. And I think that's what makes it like even more discouraging is like, there's going to be people coming together who are fighting for this specific thing, like to get access to get people what they need. And there's people who it has nothing to do with them, but they still just want to be against it for whatever fucking arbitrary reason. Yeah. It's so frustrating. I think it just shows like truly, you know, how that stigma, how prevalent that stigma is. And it's just going to make it worse. Uh, yeah. Reddit yeah. is a hellscape, like I said. That's going to be like the takeaway from our podcast generally, I think, is like Reddit is actual literal hell. I would argue that hell in the Bible is theoretical, but the hell that Reddit creates is lit. <laughs> it is lit. It is the fire in rooms. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think also because like I, we've talked a lot about like, you know, the school culture in general and like all of this, but I think with the Reddit post and some other stuff, like there's something to be said also about change that we can push within like the student body itself. Mm-hmm. Um. I can give an example, which is like, it feels like silly to talk about now in hindsight, but like, it was very frustrating to me at the time, which was, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I'm not on a journal, which is like fine. Cause like at the end of the day, did I really want to be on one? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. And especially the type of work I want to do, like, it's not really like necessary relevant, but like, um, I couldn't. It wasn't that I didn't really have a choice because I couldn't try out because the process of trying out was inaccessible to me. Um, And this was an issue that like I really tried to push to make it accessible. Basically, like my school does journal tryouts spring semester of 1L and it's in one weekend. You either get to choose between two different weekends, but it's one weekend. You do the entire tryout and it's like a lot of work and you get your accommodations for it or whatever you get on exams. So like time and a half. However, for me, that couldn't work because I get like really, really bad migraines if I have too much screen time in a row. So if I get like eight, if I'm sitting there for 12 hours on something that other people have 12 late hours like that, I can't, I can't do that. So I would have needed two weekends and it just was like going through administration, going through, it's run completely by our law review and completely by students. And so getting this back and forth and it like, I feel like if we'd been more inclusive of disabled students for this from the start, I wouldn't have had to go through all of that. It was very stressful. And I ultimately wasn't able to try out. And I'm not the first, like the former president of our org, Advocates for Disability Rights, like had the same situation as me. 
And so I feel like there's still work to be done among students, like huge in student orgs and things like this that I students are running. And it it's just, you know, we can all like schools and administration and the field, like huge work needs to be done. But I think even among each other, like this Reddit post shows, like there's stigma and we need to work to be more inclusive and at least like think about people who think differently and might learn differently. Any parting thoughts, like last topic? How do you, like, how do you both see like room for, or like hopeful things maybe to end with, like like room for law schools in the legal field to become more inclusive, especially of disabled students, but also in general, um, more accommodating. And like, are there any places where you see that happening? So I think at least in my school, in my experience, what gives me hope is my friend, Sarah, who has been doing all of these incredible things to help people seeking accommodations and people with disabilities. I think that is, I don't know, it's really comforting and inspiring to see someone just decide that they're going to do it and do it. Because so much of law school is like, we're doing this because it's the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another thing my school right now is, has put together a grading task force. Um, We're, we're considering going pass fail um, as a school, which is, I think, maybe some more schools do the high pass pass low pass but it's famously like the harvard law system and i think that if a school that's not a t14 can step up and say like hey like this is the right thing to do so we're going to do that that would give me a lot of confidence that law school could become a more accommodating place for people We'll see if my school actually does that because it's, you know, this would be years down the line. But the fact that they're even considering it, I think, is is worth noting. For sure. That's really, like, refreshing to hear, actually. We just went pass-fail for clinics, so we're behind. Like, our clinics were on a curve and that was like really difficult for people just waited a lot of people from doing clinics because it's like you work so hard to get an automatic b plus like we had a we have a b plus curve and so um it's yeah um i do not see that happening here and i wish i did but that makes me refreshing maybe that pushes everybody in the right direction our legal research and writing was pass fail at least oh ours is great ed that was a huge relief i have to say I will say that in a typical law school, I believe your oral arguments make up half of your grade and ours made up 10%, (laughs) Um, which was very relieving to me personally. We didn't even do them so well. (laughs) You do oral arguments? No. Mm -mm. My school very surprisingly has a lot of transactional classes so like once you pass one L there's like a huge split 
So if doing litigation, there's like a shit ton of classes where you have oral arguments. So they're like, we're just not making everybody do it. If that's the shit you want to do, just go take the litigation classes. So we have like a lot of appellate classes. We have a lot of like trial advocacy classes that are like really intense workshops Mm -hmm. um, and writing workshops. So like if that's what you want to do, just take those classes. Interesting. We also have trial ad. Um, I took trial ad. Oral arguments was very different from trial ad in my experience. I think oral arguments is literally just like um, hazing. Yeah. I feel like so much of law school is hazing. Oh, the bar is hazing. <laughs> yeah. Like it's all oh, hazing. Absolutely. I feel like we're in a cult sometimes. Like I feel like law school is like a freaking cult. And like if you get sucked in, and there are definitely moments where I feel like I'm like, succumbing to the stress or like the influence of the school and I'm like I'm so glad that I consider myself to have free will because goddamn I actually think what a lot of people aren't prepared for in interviews especially like big law interviews is you expect to like go in and just be like here's the research I did for my journal. Here's what's getting published. Here's my GPA, blah, 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 blah. Um, And then, you know, some firms, that's what it's like. They only care about those optics. Um, But you go in and you could ask like, what do you do outside of law school? And people don't have an answer. Yeah, that actually brings up a really like important disability thing, which is like, I've never gone through a big law interview and probably won't, but like public interest interviews are, I think, I think they're pretty different, but also it depends on the job. And like, there's a lot of personal, I think I've had, especially like, I don't know, I've talked about my cats and interviews a lot, but um, I've heard from people anecdotally at my law school about like when you're disabled, especially if you're neurodivergent um, or autistic, for example, that like big law interviews have been incredibly challenging because of that. And like them trying to find a fit, but when you're like autistic, you might not be picking up on certain cues. And then that fit isn't there, like that making the interviews so much more challenging than they necessarily need to be. Um, and I don't know, like I, I can't speak for it because I haven't gone through it, but like that's just what I've heard. But I think that extends beyond big law too, like just in general. Um, because we're like taught to only talk about like almost like forced so pressured to only talk about school and then like when people want to get to know you, because people want to get to know their, who they're going to be working with, which I think to an extent is reasonable. Like, um, it's hard. Yeah. I like, so I've done a lot of public interest interviews and yeah. I've done big law interviews at this point. Um, and it's so interesting to me how they differ. First of all, I think there's a lot of unspoken roles in big law interviews. Um, that I definitely didn't know because I had absolutely no interest in big law when I did my big law interview. Um, And just like a good enough firm that they made me interested. But I could see that being like extremely hard because you really do have to pick up on these really subtle nuances and like hints that are being dropped. Um, Especially like one unspoken rule is like you don't ask about work-life balance what I always say is like a firm will make it obvious to you that they care about work-life balance if they care about work-life balance but it's really subtle like it's really really subtle how they 
how interviewers do it. Um, and it can literally just be like mentioning what they did this weekend or something like that. Um, so it's just all this big, this big game. Um, however, I will say that I have done a ton of interviews at this point in my law school career. And I have managed to talk about college basketball in every single one of them. <laughs> that is my thing that I always talk about is plants. I go in with like my easy topics, you know, and if they ask me, then those are the things that I bring up. But <laughs> unfortunately, well, maybe not unfortunately, um, if you Google me, everything that comes up is related to when I was like fighting with the chancellor of my undergrad. <laughs> like I've gotten asked about that like every single time um and I have to explain that he fucking sucks and my undergrad was just like on one while I was there and surprisingly they usually really like that just because I did so much organizing before law school that like that is a huge part of my resume and so then that's like easy to explain because that's what I spent a lot of my time doing but like people will ask you like what you do. Like, I remember I went through like a day in my life, essentially. Like they were asking me like, okay, what do you do like throughout the day? And I was like, this was when I was teaching. So I was like, well, I get up early as fuck. So I gotta be at school at like 7 a.m. And like, they literally had me run through my day. Like what I do when they were like, that's really good. Like, seems like you have a very structured life. Like that'll help you a lot in law school, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'm here now and I would not call it very structured, but okay. <laughs> so That's unstructured, funny. to be completely honest. That's so funny. That's, yeah. There's so many unspoken rules, like you said. And it's hard to navigate um, a lot of the time. Yeah. Law school is hard to navigate. Yeah, it really is. We're in a cold. We are in a cult. Um, and can we ever leave it? I don't know. <laughs> like, there are people who leave like, <laughs> stop practicing, but do they, like, do you ever leave? Like, I, <laughs> um, you can never be how you were before, is what I'll say. You can never be how you were before. Do people leave and is the only way to leave to become an influencer? your content on that is great like it's so good it's so <laughs> thanks uh a lot of people block me <laughs> they can't handle the truth yeah you no know, you're you're doing god's work you are so. you are and i and like i would say like a lot of um those people like you know leave the legal field to become influencers like their content is just like really unrelatable <laughs> as yeah. a, as a disabled person in the legal field. Um, so that's that's my input. Okay, do we have any last thoughts? I guess my last thoughts are that I think, you know, I like, I like talk, it, I find it really challenging and also like we're 
refreshing to talk about disability and law school. Challenging in the sense that like, I think I'm more open about it online than I am in real life Mm -hmm. at law school. Like in other spaces, I'm pretty open. And at law school, I am very open. Like I'm the president of this org, but not in every space. And I think that's, um, it can be really challenging to be open about disability and also mental health and honestly anything that you are struggling with in law school because of the culture that we talked about. Um, And so I guess my parting thoughts on that are, I think we should continue to talk about it. And I think talking about it is really good. But like I mentioned before, I think the real change will come from structural change. And that so many of these issues have to just do with like barriers in the legal system that are the reason why it's hard to talk about these things. And so, yeah, I I think I wish more students, more law students, more than just disabled law students or students who have disabilities or have had even like intermittent health issues. I wish more students put their stake in our liberation, so to speak. I mean, in disability liberation in general, beyond law school, but just in like life and society. Um, I wish sometimes it feels like only we're fighting for us. And I, and I I think other groups feel the same. Um, I wish people, you know, realize that a lot of the things that make our lives easier, like when professors don't have laptop files, like bands, make everybody's life easier. And that we we can make we need to make this field more human and that will benefit disabled law students but also everybody so those are my parting thoughts i'm a little rambly so i'm sorry but um, no you're dropping so much wisdom honestly and you've dropped really great resources too that i think everyone's going to appreciate yeah and last plug national disabled law students association recommend checking them out. They also have some resources on their website on like applying for the bar, applying for bar accommodations to be specific and stuff like that. So yeah. every, uh, every resource that you've mentioned, I'm going to throw in the description box so that people can have that sounds access to it. Yeah. Honestly, I think like your, your last thoughts that you just had really go into how law school teaches you to be risk averse and it makes us more risk averse about our identities and sharing those things yeah. and it makes us very careful about which groups we're sharing them into mm-hmm. yeah that's depressing um <laughs> anyways that's all for this week's episode of the in-laws make sure to follow us on the instagram at the in-laws pod We post these full-length episodes every Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And make sure to follow and rate this podcast through Apple or Spotify. See you next week.